Hi everyone and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. Today we have an actor who I've loved since I was a kid, Stephen Tompkinson. Ever since watching Balikus Angel, it's an embarrassing confession, when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I have loved Stephen's characteristic blend of warmth, humour and emotional gut punches. Stephen left the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in 1987 and joined the BBC Radio Drama Company after winning the prestigious Carlton Hobbs Award and has appeared in over 200 radio productions. He has an honorary fellowship from the University of Central Lancashire and is an honorary Doctor of Art from Teesside University. His theatre credits include Educating Rita, an upcoming UK tour, which I suggest you all book for, A Christmas Carol at the Old Vic, Art in the West End and on the UK tour, uh, The Red Line at Trafalgar Studios and Live Theatre, Monty Python's Spamalot in the West End, The Revenger's Tragedy, Love Labour's Lost and Women Laughing at the Manchester Royal Exchange, Charlie's Aunt at Theatre or Bath and Tour, uh, No One Sees the Video at the Royal Court, Across the Ferry at the Bush Theatre, Tattoo for National Tour, The End of the Food Chain at the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Absent Friends for the Wolsey Theatre in Ipswich. His film credits include Walks Like a Panther, Hector, Harrigan, Tabloid, Hotel Splendide and Brassed Off. His television credits are too numerous to mention, but just to talk about a few, they include Wild at Heart, The Flint Street Nativity, Drop the Dead Donkey, a British Comedy Award winner, and he won for Best TV Comedy Actor, Ballykiss Angel, of course, my personal favourite, First Signs of Madness, October, The Vicar of Dibley, Father Ted, Minder, All Quiet on the Preston Front, Great Railway Journeys, and Stephen Tompkinson's African and Australian Balloon Adventure. I mean, the man's credits just go on and on. Stephen is also incredibly down to earth considering the extraordinary success he has achieved. And it was such a joy to be able to chat to him and hear about all of his amazing experiences and adventures and what makes him tick as an actor. And I really hope you enjoy hearing the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Stephen's play crush was Art by Yasmina Razor, translated by Christopher Hampton. The play premiered on the 28th of October 1994 at the Comédie des Champs-Élysées in Paris. The English language adaptation, directed by Matthew Warchus, opened in London's West End on the 15th of October 1996 at the Wyndham's Theatre, before moving to the Whitehall Theatre in October 2001, starring Albert Finney, Tom Courtney and Ken Stott, produced by David Pugh and, unbelievably, Sean Connery. It was a mega smash hit that delighted audiences for many many years. The comedy, which raises questions about art and friendship, concerns three long-term friends, Serge, Marc and Ivan. Serge, indulging his penchant for modern art, buys a large, expensive, completely white painting. Marc is horrified and their relationship suffers considerable strain as a result of their differing opinions about what constitutes art. Ivan, caught in the middle of the conflict, tries to please and mollify both of them. The argument about this play has ranged for years. Is it a masterpiece or a crowd pleaser? I think it's possibly both, but I think that that depends on the eye of the beholder, much as the subjectivity of the piece of art in question in the play. Thank you again for everyone for listening to the podcast and supporting Sherman Theatre and the Old Vic. It really means the world to us, as always. And now, without further ado, here is Stephen Tompkinson with Art by Yasmina Razor, translated by Christopher Hampton. Hello, Stephen. How's it going? 
Hiya, Joe. Uh, it's all, all very well amid the madness. <laughs> yes, I've been there. Uh, I've been uh, I've been improving my gardening skills today because there's not been a lot of acting around. So I've been I've been hedge cutting. It's been it's been marvelous. Uh, and do you find that equally as fulfilling and challenging as acting? In its in its own way, yes. Uh, there's been tools that haven't seen the light of day for quite a while: hacksaws, shears, you name it. <laughs> and it, I mean, is gardening always been a thing for you, or is this is this a, a no, a, no? I've, uh, I've uh, my cooking's improved, and uh, I've 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 got very good at growing my hair. <laughs> Rather than let the grass grow under my feet, I thought I'd give my locks a go. Well, I mean, they look beautiful. I've got well, bless you here. No, it's 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 all, there's also method in the madness for that because we've had. Uh, uh, my partner Jess and I have been in a, a stop-start 40th anniversary production of Educating Rita that we've been touring for about two and a half years. But uh, every every time we, we start to get a good run on it, we end up closing a theatre. So I, I feel a bit like Oliver Cromwell at times. <laughs> You're cursed. Some kind of curse going on. Yeah, but we've uh, we've got we've got more dates starting. Um, next month and through till uh, September to try and fulfill all the people who, who booked tickets before and, and uh, were denied a chance to see the show. So it seemed, it seemed the right thing to do. And, and the hair works well because uh, Rita has this line where she says to Frank, I, I suppose you want to go around looking like that to you. And I said, like what? She says, like a geriatric hippie. <laughs> so, uh, I, I thought I'd give Jess all, all the visual aids that she could possibly need in order to land that gag. <laughs> so there's absolutely no, if it doesn't work this time, then uh, it's my fault or it's Willie Russell's. Well, I mean, you know, there's a bit of geriatric hippie magic going on about you. I think you've nailed it. I think you've absolutely nailed it. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> um, so that's amazing. So you that, is that back on tour? Are you doing like a number of different theatres and dates? Yes, we, we've got another. Uh, we've done over 250 shows so far. And wow. Took advantage last year when, when we were allowed still to perform outdoors. So we went to the Minac Theatre in Cornwall. Oh, uh, which It's an incredible venue. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're regularly upstage. We, we played through two named storms. <laughs> yeah, we went we went through Storm Ellen and then Storm Francis during during which Heather, our stage manager, couldn't see the stage to cue to cue the show. But uh, but the audience were such stalwarts. So, uh, so we just remained getting absolutely drenched and blown around, and and they they stayed too. So it was a, it was a marvelous shared experience. And I've I've never been upstaged by dolphins or a double rainbow before. <laughs> uh, yes, the, there was one moment that I thought, ah, oh, I'm obviously re really nailing this particular passage of the play because I could see people slowly bringing out phones. And so, but then I happened to glance over my right shoulder and there was a perfect double rainbow just sitting on the sea right behind <laughs> us. So, uh, yeah. 
Well, that still could have been the performance. We don't know that it was the double raver. It could have been the performance. Well, I kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not that good. I can't compete with nature. <laughs> and um, are you excited about getting back on the road? How are you feeling about that and getting back out? It's been so long, isn't it, since we've been able to be in front of live audiences? Yes. I mean, we, um, we, we were stopped last time, uh, end of October, beginning of November, when we were at the Rose Theatre in Kingston, halfway through a two-week run. So we're, we're going back there again. And we're, we're doing uh, Southampton, Northampton, Cheltenham, York, Horsham. And we, we finish here in, uh, we, we live in Whitley Bay. So uh, our, our big home theatre is the Theatre Royal in Newcastle, which mm. is going to be our, our last week in the middle of September. So it's, it's all going gonna, it's all gonna end up beautifully, we hope. Oh, God, fantastic. And I mean, what a play. I love that play. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, really is. And was that your and Jess's idea? Was that, or was that a play you just happened to both get cast in, or how did that work? No, it was well. It, it was mainly Jess's idea. We we met. I, I was uh, re-rehearsing uh, Patrick Marber's The Red Lion, which we which we'd done at Live Theatre in Newcastle, and we were re-rehearsing that because it was transferring to the Trafalgar Studios, and Jess was in the main house doing a play called Goth Weekend which had transferred from the Stephen Joseph in Scarborough. And she was brilliant in the show and she'd been telling me what she'd been up to. And she'd recently done a version of Educating Rita where they'd relocated it to the Northeast and they performed it at the Gala Theatre in Durham. And she casually said, you know, you'd be a brilliant Frank. Um, now, I, I first started reading that play when I was in my teens, so it was early 80s when it came out. And I never, I, I, when I went back and read it, I found out that now I'm the perfect age to play Frank, which I never, I never thought these dark days would uh, visit my doorstep. But uh, And was that a yeah, shock so... to realise you were that age? You like, I still thought I was in my teens. Is it a bit exactly. of a shock? <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I'd been uh, touring art, with, uh, for David Pugh and suggested to him that uh, edu I'm the right age for educating Rita and I think I've found a Rita for you so we uh, we auditioned for David and for uh, Willie Russell's daughter Rachel who helps look look after her dad's estate um, yeah reading it in a hotel room in Bath and and here here we are three years later we still haven't finished <laughs> so oh, jess God, has got it. a lot to answer for and so has <laughs> willie russell but willie willie's been willie's been amazing though he, he was there every week of rehearsal and he's been out numerous times on the road to see it and to you know to have his presence and his blessing is uh, is more than we could have dreamt for if we, we wanted just to make one person happy in the room, then hopefully it was Willie Russell. And <laughs> he said when we, uh, after the first night, he came into the dressing room and just said, thank you for giving me my playback. I mean, what a and moment. So there you go. It's all been worth it. Yeah, wow. Was that amazing to hear him say that? It really is, because I'm, you know, I'm very, very starstruck uh, when it comes to Willie. He's a a big influence on me wanting to get into the business and, and kind of showed it was possible. Um, he's a, he's a very, 
you know, writes brilliant working class characters and, and writes beautifully for women. You know, they say you should write about what you know. Um, and as far as educating readers concerned, he's both characters. Mm. He was a hairdresser. He came back into education late and became a teacher like Frank. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he sort of encapsulates uh, both characters, which is why I think it works so well as a two-hander. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I find it interesting that you, uh, you know, he's part, as you say, he's part of the reason you got into all of this. Maybe we can yeah. just chart backward, back to, 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 to a young Stephen. And, and where, where did this madcap adventure begin for you as, as, as a young guy? Um, well, I suppose it started with the, the family um, of a, a very, a very big family, a very close family from Stockton on Tees. Uh, in that my first of all my dad's eldest brother had married my mum's eldest sister and then much later another Tomkinson boy married another Hutchinson girl so we, we were we were very close and I, I, I adored that you know Christmas was always filled the house was absolutely jam-packed with uh, with relatives and with good times and I, I think when I, I, I loved them all so much and I could tell when they started, you know, when the, the TV would be on in the background, but things like Laurel and Hardy, uh, Eric and Ernie could make them laugh in such a unique way. I was, I was deeply envious of that. So I, I started to really study these comedians that had this amazing gift to make my family laugh and I, I sort of wanted to emulate them at the beginning uh, and that expanded when I when I got to school and uh, there was a particular teacher I'm sure most people have the same story a, a particular guy who's called Jeff Lynham who showed me you know something different away from my school books and he was prepared to stay behind after school and put plays on um, and yeah that's where I was I was first bitten by the bug so that was just at school what just like putting some tables aside and chucking plays on yeah 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 kind um, of... we he always used his wife used to write a sort of alternative nativity uh <laughs> the, the the first one I, I was playing an innkeeper but not one of the famous innkeepers <laughs> who said there was no room at the inn this was an innkeeper who was halfway be, uh, between the desert and Bethlehem. And he, he hosted the three kings as they were on their way to visit the birth of Jesus. And then uh, he, did, he entertained them after they'd been to see him as well. So the story was told through the king's eyes and this, and this innkeeper who wanted to know all about it. And, uh, and through that, then they started to do uh, like a summer musical as a, a great actor writer called David Wood, who, who wrote a brilliant musical for kids called The Plotters of Cabbage Patch Corner. <laughs> great title. Where, yeah, where, where we all played insects in, in the garden of the big ones, 
as they were known. Uh, but there was a bit of a revolt because the big ones only liked certain insects like the Red Admiral butterfly and the ladybird. And they were a, a, a bit more uh, gruesome to characters like Slug. And, um, you know, so, so the, 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 the uglier, if you, if you like, the uglier insects decided to revolt and turn the garden to waste so much so that the big ones decided they were going to sell the house. So then all the insects had to team together and fix the garden and we all got along after that. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, I, so I was the Red Admiral. Oh, and, right, you were uh, one of the good-looking ones, I see. Right, I right. was, yes. Uh, but I got to do impressions of the other uglier insects as well. So it was, it, it was, it was a nice opening one to show off a bit of rain. <laughs> and and the and the show transferred from the school to uh, to various places around Lytham St Anne's. Um, so yes, the, the, that started, and then the next year I played Dracula in the Dracula Spectacular show, <laughs> which which again was uh, we did a sort of punk rock musical version of that. Um, and then when I went to sixth form. Uh, because uh, I, I kept asking mum and dad, do you think I'm good enough to go to drama school? And and they'd only really seen me be a Red Admiral and an innkeeper. So when I got to sixth form and I was doing theatre studies A-level, uh, we part of the curriculum was The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And I was, uh, I was playing Proctor at mm. the time, uh, a much more serious role, because the... The original plan was that I'd go to university and either read English or drama so that I had something to fall back on. And then I could pursue the dream of going to drama school. But when mum and dad saw me in uh, The Crucible when I was um, 17, they said, no, uh, we think we, we agree with you. We think you maybe are good enough. So my, my very first audition was for the Central School of Speech and Drama, or the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, as it is now. <laughs> um, and I, I, I had other auditions coming up and speeches that I'd worked through with my uh, teacher at, at Sixth Form, Stephen Brennan. Uh, but the, when the Central audition came through, they had a list of Shakespeare speeches that you had to choose. So I kind of uh, prepared those as it was my first audition. I just did those on my own because I thought if I, if I prepare absolutely all that I can and don't get in, and Central at the time had the, the best reputation of the, all the drama schools. And I thought, well, if, if, if I don't get in, anything else would be like second best. So I'll... I'll I'll do this one as like an experiment, just to see how it goes. Uh, but I, I was lucky enough to get in, sort of blind luck, really. And, and then had three years of like an Aladdin's Cave for me uh, of different theatre styles, Restoration, Ibsen, Shakespeare. And it was, it was, it was magical. It was, it was hard work, but, um, but it was great. And there was a wonderful... Uh, Group, group of actors there. Chris Eccleston was there. Jason Isaacs, James Purefoy, Jimmy Nesbitt, Graham Norton, no less. 
<laughs> I mean, the glitterati. The, the, well, the, yeah, Rufus the royalty Cyril. of British theatre and yeah, film. Yeah, so so it was it was it was a wonderful wonderful time, and and then um, in in your third year. Uh, because equity was still a closed shop at the time you couldn't get a job without a card and you 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 had to get your card before you could get a job and <laughs> the every i think every rep had were, were given two cards each for a boy and a girl and that included the bbc radio drama company um who had a, a, a bursary named after one of their famous radio stars called Carlton Hobbs. And uh, individually, you did three modern speeches in a Shakespeare, and then the, the six of you did an extract from a play that you'd been working on. And I was lucky enough to, to be the boy that they chose and given a, a seven-month contract with the BBC so that you left with a full equity card at the end. So my, my first job was on radio and I did 54 plays in seven months oh my god <laughs> yeah I mean you, you, you talk about you talk about a national theatre of Great Britain well the, the output on radio is is phenomenal mm. and it's it's I would say 85 90 percent new writing although the, you know they do the classics as well and sometimes you'd be, you know, doing the equivalent of spear carrying or a spit and a cough. Uh, and other time, the next day you were doing a big lead or you were going in and doing readings for woman's hour and extracts from this, that and the other. So it was it was absolutely fascinating. And radio is is a brilliant medium. You know, you, you may only have a sentence with five words in it and and you could put the emphasis on each one of those five different words and read it five different ways but there's only one way to read it to make sense for the next person who's about to speak mm -hmm. so i think more than any other medium it, it brings you closer to the writer than anything and their intentions and and the lovely thing is that all egos go out the window because it's just you and the script and you're, you're trying to put over to the audience everything else. The, the audience has to listen. And for them, it's the next best thing to reading a book because they're doing all the work as to where the play is set, what the characters look like. And no two people are going to share the same vision. So you, you are performing for an audience of one. And it's, it's very special for them. And often I've had people listen to plays and not particularly recognize my voice because the character that they were imagining for themselves looked nothing like me. So, uh, you know, it, it's all about suspending your disbelief and you can do that with radio. It's, it's limitless. It's as limitless as a writer's imagination. I've done plays in space. I've done plays <laughs> set at all times in the future. I had one play called Haunted by More Cake <laughs> where I was, I was playing a character who could see a dinner party going on in his stomach. He could see all the characters there and they came and ate tea every day. So I, my character felt permanently full, but in real life he wasn't eating and he was wasting away <laughs> and dying and uh, until eventually he joined 
that company in there. So as I say, you know, it's it's up to the writer's imagination, and and it can be it can be anywhere in radio. Mm. So it, it was a fantastic start. Mm. It really was. Yeah, I bet. I mean. I also love the idea as a young actor just getting hurled everything like you just you mm-hmm. know, that, that idea of I, I feel like that's that's kind of gone from the modern industry that idea that in your first couple of years you'll just do everything from oh, romance to it. comedy to drama and uh, I feel like that gave you a, a good grounding perhaps as an actor to take on the challenges that were going to come later very much very much you, you you did you you got to dip your toe in in, a, in, in everybody's pool uh, and, and, just ha- and just have a go and be prepared. And, you know, the BBC has a great library of accent tapes to help you out. And, and it, was, it was a wonderful 32-strong rep. Uh, and, yeah, I, I still love going back to radio. I think, you know, it's my, my first love and will remain so. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. So you go back now, even now, do you? You'll do, you do the odd bit of radio oh, and go back to it, yeah. Yeah, I, I, Jess and I recorded one recently uh, by Michael Chaplin called South on the Great North Road with, uh, with Sting, no less. Oh, the man himself. In. How exciting. So there you go. <laughs> I've noticed also that you tend to do plays with amazing titles. Like so far, all the titles well, have been not? so good. Yeah, <laughs> but the, uh, the 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 play crush that I've I've got for you is is a very simple uh, three letter one word title. Yes, that's and quite that's funny. Isn't art. It? <laughs> yeah, that's about yeah. as, as small a title as you can get. Um, yeah, great. Okay, brilliant. So you're at the rep. You, you've graduated. You're at the rep. You're working. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I put these episodes together, right, I put an intro together for the audience, just let them know, um, you know, the, who the guest is, what the play will be talking about is. Um, and so I go through people's biogs to kind of put that together. And Stephen, right. I was struck uh, by the sheer length of yours i mean the the work is prolific and extraordinary in it in in, it, in the heights it achieves and, and the quality it achieves so how, how how does a boy on the radio rep go to there like what are the milestones what took us from the rep to this kind of extraordinary career you ended up having well i think it was uh, you know, the rep gave me the taste for variety um because as i said in terms of size of part and different accents um that th- there's there was no better i mean you, you don't get a chance to do 54 plays in seven months in in any other medium <laughs> um so I, I i think because of that i was very keen then to expand that to to hopefully to stage and to tv and film whatever um and I had uh, an agent at the time uh, called Barry Brown. He took me on from drama school. And he, he, he said to me, uh, I won't ask you to sign anything. He said that the basic premise will be, I'll try and make you famous and you try and make me rich. <laughs> so so that, that cut out a lot of flim flam. Um, I went, yeah. He, he said as... as as I said, I, I, that I really enjoyed the, the variety of, of roles in radio. And he said, well, let's just keep that going. Let's try and not to get ourselves pigeonholed. Let's try at the moment not to just take a job because it's offering quite a lot of money. Let's do something 
different each time from the last job. Mm. So that's what we uh, that's what we tried to set out to do, and and hopefully that that is the way that it's it's panned out. Oh, yeah, and, and it, if I got the chance to do it all again, I'd, I'd probably do exactly the same. <laughs> and and what are there any sort of landmarks that stick out for you in that moment like those those kind of big jobs or those big moments where you you might not have known well, at the time but you go wow this this was a real shift a real change for me yeah i mean because i'm six foot two as soon as you start <laughs> breaking into television you will play a policeman it's it's just a given um and one of the uh, I, I did little little bits and bobs as in in sitcoms and uh, i got this uh th they brought a sitcom back called shelly with hal bennett that i i used to watch when i was still at school and they brought him back and and i was asked to do a, a, a guest copper on that and it was it was me interviewing hal and but they the, it was written by andy hamilton and guy jenkins Wow. Um, who were who then, you know, they, they liked what I'd done and they they wrote a pilot for a thing called Wrinkly, which was uh, Tony Haygarth playing a, a, a mature student going back to university a little bit like educating Rita. Do you see how neatly <laughs> this all fits together? And and his character who's the age he was, had to share rooms with my character, who was wanting to be a lawyer, not to help anyone particularly other than himself. He just wanted the money. I think he was like an early yuppie, really. <laughs> and it was the, the clash of characters of that. And again, that was working for Andy and Guy. It was, it was a pilot that, that didn't take off in the end. But then the next one that they were doing was this um, little thing that, kind of didn't have a, a fully formulated title you said you like good titles <laughs> in the beginning it was going to be called dead belgians don't count <laughs> um because whenever there's a whenever there's a disaster it seemed at the time newsreaders would always say you know 600 people were killed including two britons <laughs> uh, and forget everyone else but uh, so that was going to be our, our working title for what ended up as Drop the Dead Donkey. But one of my uh, the, favorite they'd... comedy shows, one of my absolute yeah. favorites. I love that show. But short, shortly before we were we were going to go to transmission, that there'd been an awful ferry disaster um, in the English Channel, and Dead Belgians Don't Count seemed to be a little inappropriate at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and they, the Channel 4 did say, well, why don't you pick a country somewhere else where nothing ever really happens? And um, believe it or not, we were toying and Channel 4 were very close to accepting dead Kuwaitis don't count. <laughs> and the week, the week that we did uh, a non-transmittable pilot just, just for, our, for ourselves, because there hadn't really been uh, a sitcom where... 20 to 25 percent of the gags were topical uh, mm. depend and 
totally dependent on what was actually happening in the news that week. And of course, the uh, the the week that we uh, did this dummy run, the next week was when we were going into full transmission. Was when Saddam invaded, and suddenly <laughs> Kuwait was everywhere. And I think we'd have been pulled if we'd gone with that title. So and Andy and Guy were, were desperately thinking, what else goes on in newsrooms? And there was this saying about the dead donkey. Um, I think it started with the Sun newspaper. This this donkey had been found abandoned at the side of the road. So they ran a piece and got their readers to adopt this donkey. And its health was sort of being put as the last item on the news, the sort of feel-good factor to say that it was getting better. But of course, if if it, that and that became like a byword in TV newsrooms, that if a more important story comes in, then you drop the dead donkey and you do something else. So yes, it, it certainly still is the most interesting title. Yeah, oh, it's that fantastic. I, that I've ever worked on, and and it had an amazing response. And um, Andy and Guy, uh, I'm just in awe of them because they they would they built into the plot where these topical gags would come and all the characters all had very very strong personalities so not only did they have to find uh, a gag that would indicate the the topical news story at the time they had to frame it around whichever characters were in were on camera at the time and do it from their point of view and uh, so they they would walk around the rehearsal rooms with you know, radio sets put to their ear and, and <laughs> just writing furiously. Um, and it, it was, you know, we, we'd go in on a Friday to do the read through and uh, sort of plot, plot the scenes out. Then the same thing on Saturday. Uh, Monday, we would start getting the topical gags in. And then on Tuesday, uh wednesday we recorded the show in front of a live audience thursday they would edit it and two of us would go in to do a voiceover over the end credits with thursday's topical news and i think the latest they got it to channel for after editing it was 40 minutes before it was due on air with some <laughs> some petrified runner standing outside <laughs> channel four waiting for the the edit edited program to arrive on a motorbike oh my god mm. did you love that though did you love that energy almost it's yes. almost theater isn't it really yeah and and it was terrifying yes it was it was a new half hour play every mm. week um post-it notes were, were very handy <laughs> stuck around everyone's computer and you've You'd be praying you didn't get the uh, the gags about Slobodan Milosevic. <laughs> oh, just give me something simple, please. Um, so yeah, but we 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 really gelled together as as a, a cast, and we're we're still in touch now. We've been doing quizzes all the way through lockdown, and uh, we're very much in touch uh, because it was a, a uniquely special program, mm. and the the repeats still stand up when you. You have uh, 
this was in a week where this, this and this happened. And, uh, and the recordings were always fantastic. Andy Hamilton, who's not only a brilliant writer, he's, he's a, a great raconteur and he'd be the, the warm-up man for the audience. So he'd be positing little things that were going to get dividends later. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a magical time. Um, and there hadn't really been anything as topical as that uh, in, a, in a sitcom variety. There was spitting image, of course. And, and back in the uh, politically wise, there was, you know, that was the week that was and things like that. Mm. But there hadn't really been anything on TV news. And I, because mm. I think we, we expect the BBC and ITV when they're doing their news bulletins to well of course it must be the truth this is the bbc <laughs> but of course as soon as we started um showing journalists uh their own game <laughs> we were kind of inundated with stories that would make your hair curl so we had to be and we used quite a few of them but we were very careful not to base it on anyone in particular i hope that's absolutely clear um, and and also knowing full well that the actual guilty parties weren't going to sue us because then they'd have to admit to the dirty tricks they were pulling and and my character damien day was the foreign correspondent absolutely encapsulated that he he went round everywhere with a, a teddy bear called dimbles <laughs> that he could he, he, that appeared in like every disaster uh story that damien had to report on this bear would appear he also <laughs> carried a bloodstained plimsoll with him and uh, he was totally unscrupulous he'd, he'd literally you know, sell his grandmother for a for a good story and and people really bought into it and yeah i think it was the journalists who were flattered more than anything <laughs> uh, so i also used to try to combine that with doing some theater as well and and especially when you you're touring things and you go into local bbc radio uh, stations to to promote the play wherever you may be there was always people coming up and go uh, your character Damien Day we've got one in this office <laughs> <laughs> and so you were always going around seeing all these all these what you thought were fictitious clones <laughs> actually in real life it was rather quite scary really god what a great adventure and yeah. Is that like a, did that start TV and film off for you? Is that is that what that began yes. that journey? Yes, very much so. Um, and it, it was the success of of the show, and and then you know because it was very much an ensemble, uh, various of us started to be seen for for bigger roles, uh, and uh, I suppose my next big. Uh, breakthrough was was uh, getting Father Peter Clifford in Ballykiss Angel, um, which is is the TV show of my childhood. Ah, oh, um, well, there completely. you go. I'm, I mean that that was Kieran Prenderville created it, and the first two of those scripts, I, I've I've never turned a page so so quickly and so avidly, mm. and I thought, oh, if we can get close to getting what's on the page right on the screen i i think we we could be on a winner here and, mm. um no, it's a fantastic show absolutely brilliant. and it was it was uh they were very clever the way they they went 
about casting it because the the village itself you you had to believe that these people had grown up together mm. so they spent an awful lot of time getting that right first of all and because the the central character who was this fish out of water english priest coming into this village i was the, the last person to be cast <laughs> uh, they established all the village so so it felt it felt in situ i suppose yeah uh, and again that that was just glorious and and the response to it was phenomenal yeah amazing show i mean it feel like i feel like we've been seeing sort of clones of that show for years since it yes. sort of hit on something that yeah. was really i don't know just seemed to tap into something mm -hmm. people wanted to see and wanted to engage I with i think them. so yeah yeah and, and and sunday night kind of should be that it should be that family thing and and, and it's mm. still going on now with call the midwife that you know yeah. there's there's a hunger for that as as there was with uh, with wild at heart as well and, and mm. um it, it, both shows would go out january february when you've got post christmas depression and it's freezing <laughs> and it's dark outside and you can show picture postcard images uh, either of a beautiful village in southern ireland or you know the the, the plains of south africa and these mm. incredible animals and and you don't have to worry that there'll be anything unsavory there it's a family <laughs> thing where you can just leave the remote where it is and sit together and and we did used to get three generations of families all writing in saying how much they it was it was a very unifying experience so I, i'm very proud to be a part of that Oh, yeah, it was the same for my family. We did exactly the same thing. We'd all sit and watch it. And I found that really interesting about where your story starts with your family and with that big family at Christmas mm -hmm. and entertaining your family and the fact that such pride in this show is unifying families. It feels like you've achieved those things that, that, that young Stephen wanted to, you know, to set out to entertain and to bring a family yes, together. Yes, and, and, and how grateful you are to, you know, people say, oh, well, it, it's easy if you're going for just, you know, trying to appeal to everyone. I, I don't think it is. I think it's easier to be niche. Mm. I think when you're trying to please everyone, you, you have a bigger chance of failing. Uh, but but when you manage to, to pull it off in, in the, you know, I, th I think in its first two weeks it was 15 million viewers for Bally Kiss Angel and amazing. it was you know 11 million viewers for Wild at Heart and, and you can't comprehend those numbers um <laughs> I, I remember uh I, we're, we're a big cricketing family as well and I I, I took my mum and dad to South Africa to go and watch in England uh, get hammered as it turned out um <laughs> in 19 well for the millennium we we went to uh, th this was before wild at heart we we went out to um uh, johannesburg and to cape town for for those two tests uh, and it and it was for the millennium as well my, my dad and i went up to table mountain on the the first day of the millennium to, to nelson mandela was was going back to visit Robin Island. And so there were loads of people up on Table Mountain. And there was, uh, there was uh, an Indian family of ladies all in beautiful traditional saris who, who were native to Joburg. 
And uh, they, they sort of pulled my dad to one side and said, is that the priest from Ballykiss Angel? <laughs> so my dad came over to me and he said, I literally can't take you anywhere. <laughs> so it was, it, it, it's lovely that, you know, that when something does click like that, that it can travel worldwide. And it's, uh, it's a very, yeah. a very nice feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And also that reward for your parents of having seen you in that sixth form play and said, no, actually, we think you might have something. Absolutely. And no, I, yeah, I, I couldn't have done it without, couldn't have done it without their backing and their encouragement. Yeah. And it was difficult because there was no history of acting in the family at all. Um, and for the first two years of the three-year course, they, they don't get to see you. You don't do any public performances. And it's not like you get a, a, a school report either. <laughs> so they, they just have uh, your word of mouth that things are going okay. Uh, but when they, they the first thing they got to see me do was Andrew Aguicheek in Twelfth Night. And that, <laughs> oh, and that led to... That led to me getting an agent and blah blah blah. So, yeah, I, I, I was thrilled that they they got to see um, the, the the benefits of of their faith. Yeah, yeah, hugely. I mean, yeah, rewarded more than they could probably have imagined. Yeah, or, or me. Scale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, that moves us on, I think, to your play crush quite well because you talk about the hard thing of appealing to everybody or, the, or that, that that populist hit and I think populism has also all, almost become a dirty word in theatre as if like appealing yes. to a large group of people is a bad thing and um, obviously I know your work with the old Vic and with Matthew Watchers I feel like he he truly believes in populism in like appealing to a broad consensus and how difficult that is Absolutely. and extraordinary and yeah. I think art, art is a fantastic um, version that was a play right that again to to nick a matthew phrase it's it's the popular made artistic and the artistic made popular yes um, and and so i'm just curious like why art and what what why why um, is that the play well I, I was i was lucky enough to be uh invited to it, it's it's first night um <clears throat> at wyndham's you know with uh with Tom Courtney, Albert Finney, and, and Ken Stott. And and it was it was just extraordinary. <laughs> the uh it's this perfectly crafted little gem that Yasmina Razor has has written and beautifully translated as well by Christopher Hampton. And it's you know, especially in a theatre, it's about suspending your disbelief. And the utopia that she has created and, and the rules, she's very, very specific. The, these are three men. Um, it has to be set in Paris. Um, but, you know, you, 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 you couldn't transpose it to England because they never mention sport once. <laughs> and and what, three, what three men in England can survive a 15-year friendship without sport rearing its ugly head at some point? <laughs> so, so it's, so it's a fret, fre and it's a Parisian culture as well. I, I think Parisians are very different from the rest of France. Mm -hmm. um, she's never wanted to... Lots of women have said, oh, they'd love to have a go at it. Why can't you write it for women? 
because women would uh, react differently. Mm. Um, it's 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 she's observed Parisian male friends, mm-hmm. and and she's absolutely nailed it, and she's never wanted it put being put on camera either. Mm. Um, she allowed God of Carnage to do that because it lends itself to that, but but art has to be has to be observed in the theatre, mm. I think. And and, uh, and I really admire her for sticking to her guns over that, and, which is why it's this, the, the rules that she's created, uh, I think, are just perfect. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm so jealous that you were lucky enough to see that first incarnation of it. It must have been oh, yeah. extraordinary. It, what was it, that it, like? It, it it was electric, you, you know, you, you didn't know what to expect. And having uh, consequently talked to Matthew about it, you know, he he said they, they didn't they didn't know how it was going to be received when when they'd done previews. There was there was quite a lot of uh, barracking from the audience for people who who thought because of its title that. Um, this playwright was just taking the mickey out of people who enjoyed art and it's it's not about that at all yeah and he he said it could there there were sort of arguments breaking out from the audience (laughs) who thought that this play was was just scornful and and uh derisive if you like And, and and it's not that at all but but come the first night you know after the opening speech that describes this painting. And when you actually get to see the painting, people just started laughing. <laughs> and then they never stopped. Yeah, yeah. And what I, I think once once that icebreaker had happened, I mean, if, if people hadn't laughed, it could have been a very short run. <laughs> but, but they did. Uh, and, and maybe that's an English audience reacting to it. I've, I've never seen it performed in its, in its native French, and, and I don't know if it gets the same reaction there. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was absolutely magical. And, uh, and then to, to top all that, I was in the same room as Sean Connery because he was the producer. <laughs> well, him and David Pugh, obviously. <laughs> and... I mean, ostensibly, this is a play about male friendship, right? Three, three yes. men are arguing about one of their um, compadres' decision to spend an inordinately large amount of money on what is essentially a blank white canvas, uh-huh. um, or not, depending obviously or on not. which point of view one takes exactly uh, within the show. What- well, art, art does that. Art does divide, um, and one person can see something in a picture that they can relate to that other people can just dismiss completely. Mm. I mean, you, you'd be a very brave person to, to go around an art gallery with your best friends and stick your head over the parapet and say, I think that's brilliant. And for them just to look at you as if they've never seen you before. I don't know you. How? How can you think that's great? But it, but it's lovely. Art is subjective, um, mm. and f- for that to be the the, the catalyst of this uh, friendship disintegrating before your very eyes is is amazing. 
It's something so, it's so beautifully, I think the best things are though, aren't they? So beautifully mm. simple. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I was lucky enough to, I, I don't know what cast number I was <laughs> when I joined it. I'd, I'd never been in the, in the West End before. So that, that was an absolute thrill. And Wyndham's is such a, a beautiful venue for the play. Uh, and I think the music is incredible as well. And the design is so simple, it's beautiful. Um, or the, it, there's, there's three walls, obviously, and these three very different chairs, and they, they each represent one of the different characters. And, and apart from one revolving wall to give an indication of it being a different flat, it's a, it's a, it's a stunning design. Uh, that's Rob Howell, I think, didn't he? Did the design of course. for that? Um, the yeah. extraordinary Rob. I mean, yeah, and him and Matthew, obviously, such an amazing partnership. Yes, um, over the years, absolutely. So, just tell us what was it like on stage in this play? And because obviously, you sat in the audience, you'd seen it, you'd had that feeling. Then, yeah. how did it feel to be and, on stage? And you know, uh, uh, Tom Courtney and Albert Finney had worked together a lot before, and, and again, they were. Uh, so iconic to me growing up, um, you know, uh, Albert Finney's performance in Saturday Night, Sunday Morning was, was like our, our Marlon Brando or, or our James <laughs> Dean. He, he, was, he was this working class rebel and, and, you know, Tom had done Billy Liar and, and they obviously adore each other and like working together. And, and when they did the dresser together, it, it was it was beautiful absolutely beautiful and for them to be joined by ken stock with this incredible performance uh, you know I, ivan is uh, an amazing character and he he, he just he's, he kind of stole the show in a way which he didn't mm. think would be possible from two such established uh, performers but i think that's that's the nature of of yasmina's writing as well yeah, um yeah. And so when when I was asked to to join and they wanted me to play Ivan, I, I, I absolutely couldn't couldn't believe me luck. And it and it was that holiday in South Africa with me mum and dad where I was learning the lines. Oh because, amazing. Because uh, as soon as I got back, uh, January was when I when I started rehearsing. Wow. And so you got to do the monologue then as Ivan. The aria. The, the, as, aria. As, the aria as it's known yes <laughs> yes and i mean did you feel pressure i mean because that is that as you say is a show stealing moment ultimately and a show stopping moment did, did you conceive of that was there pressure or were you just like this is just lines i've just got to say them and get through um it. well no because again that that that's in yasmina's writing it, it, i think you know it's it's maybe six pages long and it's only two sentences. <laughs> I, you know, Ivan, Ivan comes on, so, you know, crisis, insoluble problem, major crisis. Both stepmothers want their names on the wedding invitation. Full stop. The next sentence goes on for six pages. <laughs> so you, you have to gird your loins, stiffen the sinews, light the blue touch paper, and away you go. <laughs> and it's it's a treat 
it's a real treat and the audience adore it she's she's set ivan up to be this henpecked harassed bullied character who who does not have the same uh, life skills as the other two he's he's <laughs> He's a bit of the a spare wheel. He's he's shambolic, and and that's why they like him. They're very professional and very, and he's he's kind of light relief for the other two characters. And so when he comes onto this beautiful, beautiful rant, just and it's on, it's only about a wedding invitation, but it but it seems like the biggest thing in the world, and it's 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 gorgeous. And then after after all the you know, it, it's sort of five, five, five and a half minutes, maybe, and then right at the end of it, when when you've just run out of breath, you know, Mark Mark's character says, "Then what?" <laughs> and it, and it, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful payoff. Yeah, oh, it's extraordinary. And Serge what... says that I should say. Serge, and Serge, what... Mark, and Ivan. Um... What do you, why does this play in Jaw, do you think? Like, I mean, there's the male friendship thing, there's art subjective and dividing us. Why, why do you think it's so it's endured for so long and keeps coming back into the conversation? Well, I think, again, I think it's because her rules are so specific that you, you, you invest in this friendship, um, these three men in Paris, of a certain age and you, to see to see it fall apart is is a terrible terrible shame mm. when they say so you know this is the end of a 15 mm. year friendship uh all over this it seems it seems terribly sad at the same time as it being ridiculous and funny <laughs> and uh, it's it's hard to set out to encapsulate that but but it does it just it just works and is that his power? Uh, yeah, do you think? I mean, you know, if, if we all knew what the X factor was, yeah, we'd yeah. all be doing it. We could all but yeah, they, 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 they come across so few and far between when, when it, it hits the nail on the head every mm. time. And, and audiences just adore it. And, and mm. they teach you where the laughs are. And it, it does change slightly from night to night, but it, but it has this impetus and this you know it's the train is about to leave the station and then <laughs> bang off you off you go oh god that's fantastic well look Stephen thank you so much for giving us your time and for coming on the show um I really appreciate it and for speaking so openly about your experiences it's just really fantastic and great to hear you oh it's a pleasure Joe thank you thanks for having me oh it's a total pleasure thank you so much See you soon. Bye. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. If you enjoy this episode of Play Crush, we would really appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe as it helps other people find the podcast. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Eliot Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who has supported us through this difficult time. <laughs>